Shalom. Welcome to another episode of Inspiration from Zion. I'm Jonathan Feldstein, and I have the privilege of being your host, coming to you from the Judean mountains here in Israel. I like to refer to it as the original Bible Belt. Inspiration from Zion is a program of the Genesis 123 Foundation, whose mission is to build bridges between Jews and Christians and Christians with Israel in ways that are new and unique and meaningful. I pray that you will find this, all of those. Through this program, we're excited to connect you to people and stories in and related to Israel to give you a window to look through, experiencing aspects of life here that you might not otherwise know about. We want this to be interactive, so please be in touch with us at inspirationfromzion at gmail.com and send along any questions and any comments about any topic, anytime. Or you can reach us at genesis123.co or follow and like Inspiration from Zion on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Stay tuned until the end of the program, where we're also going to be sharing some exciting new opportunities and offers. And as always, please feel free to share this with people who you know who will also find it of interest. Today's topic came from an inquiry by one of our listeners, specifically asking about Jewish business ethics. We welcome your questions as well, and, and encourage you to write to us. Today, we're going to explore a range of topics that are loosely termed as Jewish business ethics based on biblical values and their modern application. And in addition, Jewish military ethics rooted in a Jewish and biblical tradition. Our guest is tremendous and I'm excited to, uh, to welcome him for the first time on Inspiration from Zion. Rabbi Dr. Shlomo Brody is the co-dean of the Tikva Online Academy and founding director of the Tikva Overseas Student Institute. Rabbi Brody previously served for a decade as a senior instructor in Yeshivat HaKotel, one of Jerusalem's most preeminent uh, yeshivot or, or institutions for Jewish studies, and is a junior research fellow at the Israel Democracy Institute. Rabbi Brody's writings focus on making Jewish text and tradition accessible to broader audiences while applying them to contemporary social and ethical situations. Since 2007, he has been a regular columnist for the Jerusalem Post. His writing has also appeared in prominent journals, newspapers, and websites, including Mosaic, First Things, The Federalist, Tablet, Sohar, The Forward, Hakira, and other popular publications. And he's also been cited in Israeli Supreme Court decisions. His first book, a Guide to the Complex, Contemporary Halachic Debates, received a 2014 National Jewish Book Award. And his latest book, which we look forward to, Judaism Confronts War, Jewish Military Ethics for the 21st Century, will be published at the end of 2022. I look forward to reading that and um, having Rabbi Dr. Brody back with us to discuss it. A summa cum laude graduate of Harvard College, he received rabbinic ordination from the Israeli chief rabbinate, a master's in Jewish philosophy at Hebrew University in Jerusalem, and his PhD from Bar-Ilan University School of Law, where he continues to serve as a postdoctoral fellow. Rabbi Brody is a native of Houston, Texas, and now lives in Modi'in with his wife, Rocky, and their five children. On a personal note, we've actually never met in person, but I always look forward to his articles and social media posts and videos. His topics that we'll discuss today and in general lead to an unavoid unavoidable 
and truly engaging dialogue about these and other topics of modern contemporary Jewish thought. Some may be for a future podcast. I know, and I look forward to your affirmation of this, that we are in for a big treat. Rabbi Brody, welcome to Inspiration from Zion. Uh, thank you so much. Thank you for those kind words and congratulations on this wonderful forum. Thank you so much. Yeah, we're very, we're, I, I think I mentioned to you before we started recording, um, when we were planning this, the, the numbers of listeners has, has gone up from 50,000 to now near 70,000 downloads in fewer than six months. We're really uh, excited about that. Amazing. Let's jump in. You know, the, we're, we're going to try to break down a lot of information in a, in a relatively short time today, um, focusing on loosely termed business ethics and military ethics. And, and I deliberately want to focus first on the business ethics. There have been countless volumes, both of biblical literature, commentary, as well as modern interpretation about Jew. Again, I say it in quotes, Jewish business ethics. It covers a wide range of areas. Can you give us an overview? We, were, we discussed picking out a few specific topics, marketing and advertising, fair work practice, and a work environment, and then jumping into two related but, but somewhat parallel issues of intellect, intellectual property rights and corporate responsibility. Uh, and we could go on for days. Can you give us an overview kind of on how we look at Jewish business ethics and perhaps some examples up front that we can refer to through the course of the conversation? Sure. I mean, I think in general, with when you think about Jewish ethics, one should recognize that it comprises of two main things. There are certain laws and norms that might be formal that you can say that we see in the law books. And then there are other matters or principles which are probably best defined as issues of virtue or general morals or general imperatives that we impose upon people to deal with all those ethical situations in which uh, we might not be able to make a pinpoint law for and put it directly in the law book, but we know it when we see it, when we see someone acting ethically, and we know when we see it, when we see someone is acting and not in a proper manner. So I'll give you just you know, an interesting example. Um, we all know that the Bible says in Ten Commandments, uh, you shall not steal. Right? And we all get, right, that's an obvious one. And it's not obvious in practice, right? People, of course, sometimes steal, unfortunately. But it's the type of thing where we understand how that's easy to define in a law book. Uh, but there are other times when there are other practices, which is not clear-cut stealing, or it's not clear-cut deception. And yet, if you ask yourself uh, in your own heart, or if you're standing before the Lord, right? They're imagining you're standing yourself before the Lord. And when there is a time of when you're end of days of your days of your judgment, or even just an annually or any other time of introspection. And you say to yourself, did I act properly there? Did I deceive someone? Did they really fully understand that what I was getting, what they were giving up in this deal or in this transaction? And I think Jewish ethics imposes upon us to go beyond the letter of the law and also to think more broadly about questions of, well, do we really act in a way in which we feel that made us reflect on as being a really wonderful and ethical person? So I, I love that. That's great. Um, maybe we can think of uh, some specifics. As a matter of fact, when you, were, when you were speaking, it occurred to me a few weeks ago on Fridays before Shabbat, I go out and run my errands and there's a particular bakery that I go to to buy rolls, challah rolls for Shabbat that my kids like. And once I came home and I miscounted and I got a couple of extra ones. So I knew I owed the money because otherwise, otherwise, as you said, it's stealing. 
and I didn't pay for them. So when the next time I went back, I didn't pay the money because that was kind of weird and embarrassing. But I just bought the same. I bought two less and paid for for the full amount. So I at least I knew that I would be even, and it made me feel so much better because it was not an intentional thing. But I I, I at least covered what my responsibility was. Um, but but let's. I mean, there's so many broad topics, and when you and I were preparing this kind of conversation, it was it wasn't one that that we can just have off the cuff. It's really got to be somewhat structured. We spoke about marketing and advertising and fair work practices as, as having an element of uh, unique personal responsibility and intellectual property rights and corporate responsibilities as being something that are much more broad, less um, codified. Uh, and and how, can, how do these relate? I mean, how, can you give us, give us some examples in real life? Sure. I mean, let's start, you know, if we can with marketing and advertising for a Great. minute, because here, I think both the Bible and later rabbinic literature speak about the importance of not being deceptive, right, of not uh, deceiving someone in terms of what they're getting. So in ancient times, you know, example would be if you have a certain product and let's say you have 100 units, 100 items of the product, and 10 of them are really top condition. And the other 90 are in less top condition, right? So what do you obviously do if you're wanting to sell, attract people to that item? You place the 10 best looking ones, whether it's fruit or some other item on the top. So everyone thinks that all 100 are the same quality. And um, in rabbinic literature, that is seen as being prohibited action, right? Seen as being deceptive. Now, if you want to modernize that example, so we know that all the time in advertising today, um, we have this sort of, we, we make it very attractive to people to think like why they need this item, why this item is so great, or why this item improves their lives in so many different manners. Um, and I think everyone sort of knows today that that's the way advertisers work. And so you could say, well, you know, if that's what everyone knows today, we know that people play these games with mind tricks, so to speak, in advertising and marketing, well, then there's no real deception because everyone knows it. Wow. Yet, I he think here, this is precisely where it might be by the letter of the law, that's not deception. And yet in the spirit of the law, in the spirit of the ethos of trying to produce virtuous interactions between human beings, we understand that some actions cross the line and some things are being done in which you're being too deceptive. You're being too pulling people in too much. And, you know, I, I think that one of the big questions we have to think about now in 21st century, particularly with advertising and social media and, and other different uh, forms, is that we now know today how uh, deceptive it can be and how um, suspicious some of the behavior is in terms of the way that we're being drawn in to buy certain products. And I think we have to think long and hard, both as a society, but particularly as people who are in these fields about what types of behaviors we're doing to try to pull people in through digital marketing and whether we, when we stand before the Lord, so to speak, feel comfortable with it. You know, if you see some of these uh, movies or documentaries that talk about people who work for social media outlets, they reflect afterwards a lot of unease with some of their practices. And I think people need to think long and hard about that. Let me, let me rewind though. Did I hear you say or, or suggest that because we in the 21st century expect dishonest or, or um, uh, hyper, uh, 
I don't know the word, fake advertising. We have fake media, fake advertising, because we expect it, that that is a factor that is, um, uh, that, that mediates one's obligation not to do it? Well, no, if it's absolutely deceptive, right? If it's outright deceptive, of course, right? So that's obviously inappropriate and forbidden by law and Jewish and Jewish thinking. Um, and whether or not, you know, this is on social media or on the internet or in a regular store. Um, so, you know, I recently tried to buy a pair of sneakers for my son. Um, the website turned out was fraudulent. Oh. Uh, and, you know, that was just, uh, that was just plain out being deceptive. You know, three months later, I got a pair of shoes that were something totally different, a different size. And you start looking on the internet and you found out that other people had these problems, right? So that's outright deception. But there are other things that we understand when people do marketing today um, that, you know, it, it tries to attract you in certain ways uh, that make you think that this product is something which is um, so incredible. Um, it certain, solves certain problems and they speak about more general terms and not necessarily making specific promises. But we have this understanding that you have to be a smart consumer. And so you also have to be a smart advertiser. I mean, think about it. When we say that something costs $99.99, and we all know that just means it costs $100. Right. And yet everyone knows in consumer psychology, as soon as you see $99.99, if you want that item, you're going to say to yourself, it only costs $90. Right. <laughs> and they know it's going to work that way. So, you know, I think that's, um, legitimate. I don't think that's being deceptive. Uh, but, you know, there are practices like that where you sort of understand that the way that people are being drawn in are ways in which you want to say to people, hmm, you know, um, I, I'm not really sure I should feel comfortable with that. And it's hard to put that into law. It's hard to put down always the specific examples. But you talk to people in the field of marketing, advertising, and they can tell you, you know, I really felt a little bit uncomfortable with that. Without without any necessarily religious guidance that there there are things that people just feel that they know that they're crossing a line on a personal or professional basis. Absolutely, and you know certainly this is something that you don't need. I think if anyone has a moral intuition, right, they should be able to feel that sense. I do think that if you are live your life through religious precepts, um, you should be more in tune with being sensitive to those types of issues and making sure you're being honest and dealing with people. And this is one of you know, the important lessons of Jewish business ethics, to create virtuous people who are in tune with those types of issues. So what, what it, we, we, we're, we keep using the word biblical, and they are biblical. Can you give us a couple of pillars as to specifically relating to marketing and advertising that, that when people go back and reread their Bible after they're done listening to this podcast, and they read read something that the light bulb will go off over their head and they'll say, yeah, that makes sense. Now I, I get it. Yeah, I mean, I think that the biblical verse, which in Jewish ethics sort of took on its own, uh, a life of its own, was that notion of not placing a stumbling block before the blind, right? So that was literally meant, right? Don't put a stumbling block and before someone. And what's the source? Where is that located? In Leviticus. Leviticus, okay. And um and, you know, that was uh, understood, of course, literally, which is important, of course, don't <laughs> place something in front of someone who, who's blind um, because you don't want someone to trip. Um, but that was taken in Jewish ethics to be a much larger um, ethos, uh, which tells us that 
The blind can also refer not to someone just physically blind, but people who are acting without knowledge. And you have the ability to prevent them from making mistakes, right? Because they're not knowledgeable about a certain topic by providing them with knowledge. Yes. Um, and so, you know, if someone comes into your store and says, you know, I'm really looking for this to solve the problem, this looks item looks like it will solve the problem based on how you sold it, how you advertised it. Right. Well, you could just easily tell them, yeah, this will be great. You know, this should work for you. I think this will work for you. You know, you phrase it in like a, you know, a very ambiguous way. Or if you're honest, you can say, well, actually, no, this really won't solve your problem. And uh, maybe I have something else to sell to you, or maybe, you know, you have to look somewhere else. It takes someone with um, a real strong, virtuous, you know, ethical uh, worldview to understand that sometimes you have to really be honest with people and say, well, this would actually be more helpful to you, right? They come in blind. They don't know exactly what they want. Right? Are you going to place the stumbling block in front of them? Or are you going to clear the stumbling block in front of them? And that, that's a very important biblical ethos. And it's an it's a important biblical ethos, and it's um, applicable to so much of our, of our lives and, and, and maybe, maybe tangentially related, just the idea reminded me when I was a kid, I used to work in a hardware store and I don't think that we were doing anything that was, was particularly wrong, but people would come in all the time looking, what do I need this tool? I need this tool. And, and one can, in talking about advertising, you can advertise a drill, a power drill that costs uh, $19.99. And then when someone walks in, it's clear that that power drill that's 1999 isn't really going to do a whole lot, but then whoever's in the store can upsell for the one that's 69.99, and 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 that's and that's a unfortunately also a common practice. Yeah, I mean you're touching on a sore point for me because I'm not particularly good in hardware stores. All right, there so we go. I am, I am totally vulnerable when I go into those places, and uh, you know you have to try to find someone who's honest, but sure. I mean, someone could easily sell to me something and I'd totally be gullible or vulnerable to that because of my lack of knowledge. So this is precisely one of those cases. Are you the type of person who's willing to uh, take advantage? You're not stealing from a consumer like that, right? You're not stealing. And many times you can do without being outright deceptive. The question becomes, are you looking to be fully honest and helpful to people? Or are you just thinking about how you can make a buck off the other person? how to max, not just make a buck, but, but maximize that. Yeah, absolutely. Squeeze it, squeeze it out of them. Whether That's right. 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 Cause everyone should, everyone's legitimately entitled to make a buck that, but, but, but when you do it from a perspective of you're trying to get more than you're entitled to, that's a, that's where we're crossing a line. That's right. Um, let, let's jump into a kind of, a, a, I mentioned my hardware store when I was in high school. Um, it was a great place to work. I loved it. One of my favorite jobs in, in my life. Um, don't think I was ever treated poorly. I think it was a great environment. Um, but what? But today, where, where do we have, there's so many. I mean, there's the whole concept of whistleblowers that I don't think anyone ever had when I was in high school, um, or maybe I was just too naive. Where do we have this on a on a, on a person a, a person to business practice? Uh, how, do, how employers... Um, need to respect and, and work with their employees. Right. So if marketing and advertising sort of relates to the um, consumer versus, you know, seller um, type of relations, employee to employer relations are covered by a number of biblical laws. Um, 
you know, there's some very important just straight up laws, which seem very simple, but, you know, obviously in practice can sometimes be difficult. You have to pay your workers on time. Right? So it's one of those basic things, um, which we sort of take for granted. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. But of course, in the real world, we all know of circumstances where people don't get paid so quickly or so on time. Uh, usually it has to do with when people, employees are vulnerable, or if they need the job or they're not as knowledgeable. Um, you know, just go back to your hardware store. That can happen a lot with teenagers. You know, they're working for you and, you know, they're a little bit vulnerable and they might not necessarily know the, the situation or how the business world works. Uh, you can sort of stall on paying them and delay in all sorts of ways. Um, it's also important to create a work environment where people can eat, right? We're literally just, you know, there's this notion and the biblical example is when people are working in the fields, right? they should be able to eat a little bit off of the land, right? In other words, you can't be in a situation where, um, where people feel like that they're just suffering when they're not being basic nutrition. Um, and certainly when people are being paid, especially by the hour, they're laborers. So there's a real temptation to think, you know, oh, if I give a person a 10 minute break, well, you know, that's on them. No, right? There's this obligation of being like a humane person to your uh, employees. Of course, uh, you know, employees also have to be honest with their employers. Yeah. So it goes both ways. Right. So especially when you're being paid by the hour. So it's important not to take those long coffee breaks and, you know, whatever else it might be. You know, as you can manipulate the situation as well. Um, and so, you know, here, too, I think it's, you know, it's critical to understand that there are going to be a certain amount of specific laws in which we can um, enact and put into the law books. But then once again, it comes to comes around to building a certain virtue. Um, a certain type of understanding that employees should be kind to, uh, should be honest, excuse me, with their employers and employers need to be kind um, with their employees. So let's go back to uh, a biblical source. Where, what, what, what can you teach us about, about these, these instances? Um, certainly, you know, it's fascinating, certainly from the employer perspective, but yeah, what about the employee, the, the employee who's um, sitting on his phone half the day while being paid by the hour. I'm, I'm curious, where, where, what do we have in a biblical tradition there? Right, so I mean, there's no doubt. I mean, obviously if a person you know, isn't working and functioning, they can be relieved of their duties, they can be fired. And you know, that's not being um, dishonest, right? That's just being, you know, being, everyone has to, that's sort of working the market in a fair and proper way. And that's of course legitimate. Um, but there are all sorts of notions, uh, comes up in the end of the book of Leviticus, Again, I think the model then was an agrarian culture of an agricultural society. Uh, but there's this notion of not working people through rigorous labor. And in the Hebrew, I think there's a, a reference here to also to being, make them not feel like they're slaves by evoking the exodus or evoking the experience of the Jews in Egypt. And so you have these notions um, and um, you, know, you have this general idea and understanding um, that uh, we should be, you know, think about the broader context of the hum human interrelations with our employees. So the Talmud uh, brings a very interesting example from the book of Proverbs. The book of Proverbs in the second chapter teaches us that you should walk in the ways of the Lord, right? And that keep the paths of the righteous. Now, what does that mean? I mean, that's important. You walk in the ways of the Lord, keep the paths of the righteous. And the Talmud gives an interesting example of a, one of the sages who's hired someone to carry some wine barrels, 
right, for them as a labor, as day laborers to move, transport um, wine uh, barrels. And as um, uh, since they're handling his property, expensive property, he took some collateral from the laborers. And the um, workers, through negligence, broke the wine barrels. Okay, so you might say, okay, well, then he can take the collateral, right? Because they were negligent with his wine barrels. And another sage responded to him and says, no, no, right? You should understand these are poor people and you can afford it and walk in the ways of the Lord and don't keep their collateral. And so the sage returns the collateral. And then the laborer said to him, you know, we're actually really hungry. And he said, you know what? I want to walk in the ways of the righteous and the paths of the righteous. So he paid them their wages, even though they hadn't fulfilled their duties. Now that's clearly not by the letter of the law. The letter of the law teaches you that you need to, you know, that you're entitled to take the collateral, or you certainly don't obligate it to pay them their wages. And yet, in a humane context and understanding who these people are before you, you don't just see them as general employees, you see them as human beings. And the Talmud says that uh, it's a going beyond the letter of the law. It's a righteous duty to pay them their wages then. So, but, but it's not just seeing them as human beings, seeing them as human beings in their condition. Because if I were the employee, thank God I'm not poor, the, the interpretation of that could be different. Could be, you know, you, you, you messed up, Jonathan, you broke the thing and it, it wasn't because, because the, the cart that I gave you was bad, you were being reckless. And, and there could be a whole different conversation about walking in the ways of the Lord and the righteous vis-a-vis me as the employee, couldn't there? Oh, absolutely. Yes. So the employees, of course, have to internalize that as well. Um, and that's why I was you know, trying to emphasize that we shouldn't think that this is just an ideal of, you know, if you are the person of power or wealth, that you have to be extra nice or generous or feel guilt towards those who are more vulnerable, right? Even a employee or labor or worker has their own ethical responsibilities. And that's important to emphasize as well. But ultimately, why I think that this verse in Proverbs and the way that the Talmud understood it is trying to teach us is that don't abstract uh, human relations into some general rules of employees and employers. Rather, see the people that you work with as other fellow human beings who have real, not just legal, but moral and obligations um, to work with. That's beautiful. Thanks. Um, you, you've mentioned now a couple of times with specific examples the notion that we that we can't that it's not good enough just to follow the letter, but to go above and beyond the letter. And 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 the the, the example that we just uh, spoke about shows that the letter of the law is in fact it varies. It's, you're going to depend on the circumstances. Why do we need to hold ourselves to a higher standard if there is in fact a a, a basic a, a, a baseline and and because it's a moving line. How do we how do we do that? Well, you know, I think it's important to have a baseline of law because that's how we can govern our relations with each other and create you know society of ju- basic justice. Um, but at the same time, uh, I think we understand that um, there is this broader notion of walking in the ways of God, of doing what's just and righteous. Um, these are biblical imperatives that are sort of put in the book of Deuteronomy and other places. Um, you shall do what is fair and good in the, sight, in the eyes of the Lord. Well, what does that mean? And 
I think that the Bible is trying to create this um, notion of un- pushing us to go above and beyond, not just because it's good for us and good for being a virtuous person, but I think also that it reflects upon um, religious people in general and what religion stands for. Right. Um, and so, you know, Jews have this concept in Hebrew, we call it Kiddush Hashem, of sanctifying the name of the Lord. And what that basically means is that our behavior uh, is reflective in some ways of God himself as it were, and certainly of the Jewish people and of our teachings and of the Torah and of our religion. And so there's this understanding that um, it's not enough just to follow the letter of the law because we want others to understand um, and appreciate that this law book, that this book of wisdom, that the Torah, that the Bible uh, makes people into better people and makes the society a better place. And so at stake in our behavior is not just are we following a certain law or norm, but is a much broader question of how people perceive the Bible and religious values as a whole. And so therefore, we got to go beyond the letter of the law, um, not just because there are times when we understand this is the virtuous way, but also because it impacts how people understand the value and wisdom of the Bible as a whole. This is getting into a very, very... uh almost like the cliffhanger where we need to be. This is the neat, I, I just want to um, take a pause now for a second and, and um, share one announcement. I want to take just a moment to remind you not to miss out on winning a free book about Israel from Jonathan's bookshelf. Just follow Inspiration from Zion on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter and share the link to this program. Each time you share this, You'll be entered into our monthly drawing to receive an important book from my own collection that you're going to want to have for your own library. The the whole notion of our personal responsibility takes takes our faith, and I'm thinking with quotes around the word just our faith, faith is important, and adding a dimension of action behind the faith. And you and I are identifiable. You spoke about a kiddush Hashem, a sanctification of God's name, that our behaviors, what we, what we do, whether, whether certainly in public, but even in private, needs to embody that, needs to, to um, always sanctify God. And you and I are identifiable as Orthodox Jews, Jewish men. We wear a kippah on our head. Um, You'll see us in, in our synagogues, praying, praying openly in public. You've got the title rabbi, so certainly, um, in, unless you drop that, you, you can't hide the identity. So when, specifically, let, let, me, let me, I don't know, it's a half negative approach, a half empty approach, but when a religious person is recognized for some behavior in, in the context of business ethics we're talking, but in, in general, that's not good behavior. How does God view that? And, and, and what does it say? You, you alluded to this. What does it say about God and their religiosity uh, specifically? Well, you know, I think that when people see um, Jews, identifiable Jews, whether they wear a yarmulke or kippah or, or otherwise, um, acting in a unethical way, legal and certainly or just gen- more generally unethical way, uh, it makes, I think, people ask, you know, well, what did this religion do for them? Um, this is what Jews call as a desecration of the name of God, Hebrew, Chilul Hashem. 
in which people say, um, you know, all these laws, all these biblical verses and commandments that you talk about um, in action, this isn't actually doing too much for you or for society. In fact, it's maybe making you think that you're a righteous person when in fact you're acting unethically. And that's a great responsibility that I think Jewish ethics imposes upon Jews, which says that recognize the fact that your actions are reflective or can be reflective, or at least can be seen as being reflective on the broader people and the broader religion. Um, that's a humongous responsibility. Uh, and you know, certainly um, I think that it's important for uh, people of relig all religion though, to recognize the fact that that's sort of human nature in many ways. I mean, when we see people, whether they're wearing a visible religious you know, uh, item, so it could be for Jewish men, it could be a kippah, um, for Christians, it could be a cross around their neck or some other sign. Um, people will perceive, fairly or otherwise, that how you behave is reflective on your religion. And therefore, um, you have this obligation to say, well, uh, I need to be think long and hard about you know, how my actions might reflect on the religion as a whole. So, you know, in a couple of years ago, we had a terrible scandal of a terrible crime, you know, Bernie Madoff, right? Who did a terrible, horrible fraud. And, um, you know, obviously that's something which he did was totally illegal and a horrible thing. And, you know, there's no question in any ethical system, certainly Jewish ethical system, what he did was wrong. But because he was visibly known as a Jew, uh, it was reflected badly on the Jewish people. And that's a terrible thing. Of course, there are many other examples when we have uh, Jews who are acting quite honestly and do very virtuous things. Um, when you know, someone just passed away, uh, it was a Feuerstein uh, in uh, the New England. Oh, I was thinking yeah. about him. Yeah. 25, so that was 30 years ago. That fire. That's right. Is so, a terrible so fire. Please mention that. Yeah. On the Malden Mills factory um, in New England. He could have just closed down his whole thing, taken a big insurance payment, and he decided to keep the business open kept all of his employees paid, even in the time when they weren't working um, and kept that town going. And that was a tremendous uh, sanctification of the name of God. Yeah, that, I, I was thinking, of, I didn't remember his name. I remember where I was and where I was working at the time. And that was really celebrated. And there are examples like that. But, so, but I, think, I think the human nature is that, okay, if a Jewish man built a, a business burns down and he continues to pay his all of his employees a full salary for however long a period of time. That's something that we know and feel good about it and is a model to ourselves, but is not in the media. And, and, and of course, a Bernie Madoff doesn't re reflect uh, Jewish law and the Jewish people, um, but, but was much more, for a whole lot of reasons, much more public and, and, uh, and, and an embarrassment. Um, and perhaps all the more reason that we need to go out of our way those of us who are identifiable as, as Jews and religious people in general to, to sanctify God's name and uphold these laws. Um, I, I, wanted to, I wanted us to pivot for a second. What if, I mean, with the exception of a Christian who wears a cross or maybe a Sikh, uh, maybe sometimes Muslims, not too many people are identifiable by their religion or by their um, faith. Um, how, how somebody, well, this brings the the obligation of being a sanctifying God's name to something that's just very personal. But how can somebody take that on and who who doesn't really have any identification? And and actually maybe that maybe the question is, 
kind of along the lines of if a tree falls in a wood woods and nobody's there to hear it, does it make a noise? If I'm a religious person of any uh, religion and I'm doing something good and righteous, um, or or opposite or not, uh, but but I'm not identifiable as a religious person, is there a particular sanctification or um, or uh, what's the English word? Um, uh, desecration of God's name um, taking place? Yeah, I mean, it's a good question. I, I think that ultimately uh, there is, meaning that even when our actions are done in private, um, at least for ourselves, I think we know that somehow we are being impacted by our religious belief or they're being loyal to it or not loyal to it. So even in our own mind, in our own heart, in our own soul, I think it impacts us even if we behave in a certain way in a forest, no one knows about it, right? No one sees it. Um, but nonetheless, I think it impacts the way we understand our own religion and our own values. Uh, but of course, you know, it's not only about the reputation of ourselves or our people, or our religion that's at stake. Ultimately, all people um, have to be willing and able to understand that they stand before the Lord at all times. Uh, you know, this reminds me of a story when I was in university and the professor was trying to encourage his students not to cheat on their exams. Oh. And, you know, which is a common phenomenon. It's a growing phenomenon in university settings. And he's giving all sorts of reasons for why you shouldn't do it because, you know, we get caught and we have ways of checking on the internet and we can compare and their cameras, et cetera, et cetera. And he, then he ended by saying, and don't forget, uh, the Lord is watching you. Good. It was good. And then there's a whole bunch of laughs and snickers in the classroom, which was less good. Uh, <laughs> but, but, but the professor is right. Meaning, and that's something which, um, you know, Jews and Christians and other religious believers always have to keep in mind. That's part of one of the fundamental uh, beliefs that we have, that our actions are seen and judged. Personal accountability. Personal accountability. There's no substitute for that. And there's no way you can put into law, into all legal books. So you have to really believe in this and internalize that belief and make it into a virtue. You know, when we spoke uh, preparing for this a week or two ago, you were, we were on Zoom and I saw you, it looked like you were dressed to go running and you were in fact going running and and I am talking about how I don't and that's and, and have been exercising. But what made me just think of that now is that you're talking about a, 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 a training that's necessary for your faith, that, that, you, that by doing something, whether you're being observed or not, it's a form of training and a constant reminder of all of those values to which we are subscribe and are obliged. Right, and it's a great example of the interaction between belief and deed. Right? Yeah. So if you have that belief, it will translate into deeds. Um, this has been fabulous, and I feel we could probably go, uh, and, and we may go in. I'm curious to see what the what what the feedback on this on this episode will be. Um, by there, there are a lot of topics, and we can go on for another couple of days breaking this out. But but we're just gonna um, move on, move on right now to the, to a kind of no less significant but broader component uh, in, in terms of um, biblical or Jewish military ethics. Um, the, the unique thing about the, the business ethics that we just discussed is that they're very personal and they're corporate, whereas military ethics 
is personal on a one-on-one -on -one basis for a soldier, but it's national. You know, the armies, armies represent states. And here in Israel, we have that. Um, I want to, uh, obviously, I'm very interested for this conversation, and we're only going to get into the uh, uh, beginnings of it, but to remind all of our listeners that your book, Jew uh, Judaism Confronts War, Jewish Military Ethics for the 21st Century, is coming out at the end of the year. Certainly people who want information about that can be in touch now, and we'll make sure that as soon as it's available, um, it is available. But let's pivot. Um, business ethics are, we have universal values. What are the universal, what are those same universal values or obligations of a Jewish state vis-a-vis -vis its military and military ethics and, the nation, and our nationality? And how do we begin to address this uh, on, on an, in present and specifically where we fall short? Yeah, I mean, military ethics is a huge topic. And, um, you know, I think if you want to think about it in concrete terms, we all know that there's this general prohibition that you can't kill someone. Right? I mean, this is thou shalt not murder is one of the Ten Commandments. Murder and kill are, are different. Yeah, okay, correct. Right. So and, um, you can't murder someone, you know, and um, in general, um, we hold people accountable for even accidental killings, um, for manslaughter, um, and certainly we don't uh, allow people just to, uh, for the sake of um, removing one harm, let's say kill 10 people next to them, right? So if the robber's coming around, we'd have a hard time with someone not just killing the robber, but killing 10 people around them. But in warfare, and particularly in modern warfare, um, there's a different dynamic that's going on because we're not just talking about individuals confronting one another, well, we're talking about nations and states, um, and we're dealing with a situation where the, um, the conflict isn't just between individuals, and the questions aren't just coming up between individuals, but they're coming up on much larger scales. And so when you start to think about military ethics, uh, what you have to keep in mind is that you're at the nexus here, at the intersection between individual relations but also the relations between collectives. Uh, and then you raise all sorts of questions of collective responsibility, collective accountability, of your loyalties to your own broader collective, the broader society, um, and how those might trump, in some ways, your individual responsibilities to other human beings. Um, so it gets very complicated when you're talking about in military ethics because you're dealing with the intersection of two different types of interactions, the communal, the national, and, and the personal. Um, and I think that one of the things that Jewish military ethics is gonna try to do is to always keep in mind that you can never forget that you are representing being part of a nation, but also wow. to always keep in mind that you're dealing with individuals, both on your side and the enemy, enemy side as well. And all those individuals were created in the image of God. So that's a lot to keep in mind when you're thinking about those types of questions. It's a lot to keep in mind. I'm thinking of my son who's a paratrooper and who's been confronted, not with life-threatening, but, but things that could could have uh, gotten uncomfortable. Um, and and yet I, I actually saw him. We went to deliver uh, some, some uh, treats on a, on a holiday a year ago and saw him guarding and how he interacted with some of the Palestinian Arabs 
around him. And I was really proud for him, but my son's also a religious person. And now I'm thinking of the, the situation of the, the situation in your class where the professor said, and God is watching and judging too. And you get Snickers in the back of the room or in the front of the room, it doesn't matter because not everyone is necessarily a religious being. So how do we apply that as a, as a Jewish state to my, in, in general, but also you have a, a, a soldier like my son who will, will uphold the, the ethically what proper to do and representing the Jewish people, but someone who, who doesn't necessarily have that grounding. Yeah, I mean, listen, um, it's yeah, religion and war is complex. And we can understand how religion and war can lead people to do a lot of bad things because in the name of religion or thinking of their truth, um, that they can do whatever is needed in order for their religion to win. Um, but, and you know, certainly winning is important. And that's something which um, Jews, you know, certainly in Israel in particular, right, care about. We have to protect our own people. We have to defend our homeland. Uh, this is a serious value. Uh, but religious values also teach us uh, the importance of treating all people humanely uh, and keeping in mind that uh, all people are created in the image of God and keeping in mind also that, um, you know, like we said before, God is always watching. And so it could be that there are all sorts of interactions in the army, which you can't judge legally, right? You can't put a person in trial for. I mean, even all these attempts, which may or may not be well intentioned or maybe guided well, maybe misguided to create international law when it comes to military interactions. At the end of the day, and you can see this in many different thinkers over the course of the centuries, what's going to make an army ethical is if the commanders and its soldiers have been educated and instilled certain values that make them try to behave in as humane a way as possible while trying to win a war. That's what it's going to come down to. For people are properly trained and educated, um, to try to act in a virtuous and ethical way as soldiers, they're going to end up being much more ethical soldiers. Behavior. So do you, do you think that we do that here in Israel? So Israel has a tremendous uh, um, infrastructure of trying to emphasize notions of military ethics, of trying to uh, teach our soldiers uh, to never forget the fact that we're dealing with other human beings. Uh, but we're also at the same, and that's, I think, has a huge impact. Um, unfortunately, the international media doesn't always capture uh, these you know, moments and doesn't always highlight uh, those stories. But I think Israel is largely successful uh, in creating very ethical soldiers in a very, very complex uh, situation and dynamic. Um, and that's partly been... I think inspired because of the religious or the Jewish nature of the state. Give us a couple of pillars biblically that we can look to. What are what that and that apply to us and whether specifically or in broad terms today. How are the what what are the, what are those instructions that we're taking um, and giving our soldiers? Yeah. So um, you know, I think one of the important ones which comes up in Deuteronomy. Uh, is this notion, and, and again, it's relating to the times of the Bible, of course, but this notion of saying, well, if you've got a fruit tree, and you're laying seed uh, on a city. So don't just go rip up any fruit tree, right? You can't do that. Uh, and the question is why, and the Bible compares the fruit tree actually to humans. It says, right, in some ways that 
uh, the fruit tree is representative of a human. The question is why? And it, it seems to be that um, the fruit tree is, of course, necessary for sustenance and for the future sustenance. And so we don't want to have a scorched earth policy. So that way we can't continue to live. Uh, but it also highlights, as a number of sensitive commentators pointed out, um, that that which is not necessary to be destroyed shouldn't be destroyed. Great. And therefore, that which should not be killed should be killed. And it's the same type of principle. I think that's a very important lesson to keep in mind. Okay, this is a big question and maybe sort of the penultimate question, but but war is about life and death uh, nationally and, and uh, on an individual basis. Um, no more, no place more reflected in the world than here, than in Israel. What's that balance? How do we balance? Uh, no scorch earth policy, don't kill other people if it's not necessary. How, where, where is that balance, as you said, between fighting a war and winning a war? Yeah, I mean, it, it's, it's not an um, easy balance to make. Um, and this is part of, I think, one of the big questions for 21st century warfare, and particularly with asymmetric warfare, when we have a different balance of powers of different types of armies, and you could have a regular army fighting a terrorist group, or you could be fighting... Uh, in urban settings, right? Not your classic battlefield um, where the use of power is complicated because if you use a tremendous amount of power, uh, you might be much more successful in destroying the threat. You're also going to be kill and destroy a lot of non-combatants uh, in that way. Um, and so, you know, the question becomes where to draw the line and the balance here. There's no easy clear-cut scientific mathematical formula, right? You know, how to figure out that balance. And I think that one of the important elements of Jewish military ethics is to always keep in mind that you're um, considering at all times a series of values, the human divine image of all human beings. And we always keep in mind uh, the importance of our collective the importance of, I don't want to just call it patriotism, but that we should have partiality to our own. That is a value, right? There is this notion of saying that we should protect our own, our own citizens and our own soldiers, even if that sometimes comes at the cost of lives of the enemy um, you know, collective. Uh, that's also a value. And so keeping those in mind is going to be complicated and hard. But I very much believe that um, people that have been trained in the type of ethical thinking which tries to keep those values in mind at all times will find the right balance in the given scenario. In addition to inspiration from Zion, another Genesis 123 Foundation program, Run for Zion, is the first program uniquely for Christians centered around the Jerusalem Marathon, creating meaningful and lasting experiences. We look forward to having you be able to join us in person soon, but now, are offering you a way to connect from wherever you are in the world through virtual tours, webinars, and briefings. For information or to register, please go to runforzion.com. Join Run for Zion and bless Israel with every step. So that's, that's great. And I hope we'll, we'll, we'll certainly have you back um, when the book comes out. And I hope you'll be addressing, uh, I look forward to it. You gotta be, it's not all, um, uh, a golden easy path and, and so I look forward to you addressing those challenges that we face here in the 21st century in the book um, 
yeah, I, I learned early on as a kid that we have two kinds of wars in Judaism, one that's obligatory and one that's optional. Do, can you speak to that and, and, and as far as the ethics and, and military ethics, how that one, one relates to the other? Yeah, sure. I mean, I, I, you know, there's a lot of discussion about what's obligatory and what's optional, but I think that the best way of thinking about an obligatory war is a war in which you're under attack. And it's obvious that, therefore, you have to act. There's a biblical value of acting to defend yourselves and your people. And this is an important point to, to highlight just because um, some people feel like, you know, religion, how can religion ever support war? And the answer is that there's a ethical value to defending your own people. And so if your people are, actually, are under attack, if your country is being invaded, there's this notion of obligatory war, which not only says that the country should fight, but you as an individual should take part in it. Uh, the expression that the Talmud uses uh, based on sort of examples from the Bible is that uh, we even pull the bride and groom from underneath the canopy right, and tell them they got to go to the war front. Uh, this is a real you know, important notion. Your people are under attack and you have this responsibility to your broader collective, to your broader nation uh, to fight. Now, an optional war is actually, you know, it sounds funny, like, what does that mean? How can you have a morally optional war? Like, why would you ever you know, think that you can go and be destructive and kill if it's optional? But when you think about it uh, longer, you recognize the fact that Sometimes it's, you're not under invasion, and yet there's a real threat. And this is an important point to keep in mind, particularly uh, in the age of the war on terror. I mean, Israel's had this a few times when it's done a preemptive strike, most famously in the Six-Day War. But that's a case where you say, well, is that really optional? Because the invasion was perceived to be right um, coming any day, any moment. And so... Uh, it preemptively Israel acted. And that was a choice. It could have waited to be invaded. But I think in that situation, it acted wisely and smartly. Now, it might have been an option to act in that scenario, but just because they had to choose whether to fight or not doesn't make it any less moral. Right? It was a moral decision to preemptively strike. We also have options sometimes to be, take what we might call a preventative strike. Israel famously destroyed the Iraq's nuclear reactor in 1981, and similarly did so in Syria in more recent years. And that was the case of what you might call preventing the threat from developing. Now that's a little bit more controversial because after all, the threat is not imminent. And yet, uh, nonetheless, uh, you can say, well, that's an option to attack, but it's optional because we're trying to prevent that threat from being created and because once it exists, it might be very hard to eliminate, as the case of nuclear weapons. Might, might be hard to eliminate or cause that much greater loss of life on both sides. Absolutely. In the case of Iraq in 1981, for sure, if Israel had waited longer until the reactor had been developed, uh, it could have caused a whole nuclear fallout, right? If they had waited till the nuclear reactor was actually operate, you know, operating already. And therefore, in many ways, it's the humane thing to act and to strike in a preventative strike before things escalate and become more dangerous. Obviously, you know, today in uh, 2022, Israel needs to think about uh, Iran uh, in terms of the threat from Iran. Of course, this isn't just Israel. America and Europe also needs to be thinking about that. 
And, you know, this is an important category of what you might call an optional war because you have to choose. The threat is not imminent. Um, but, you know, that's a very important question. And in biblical teaching, uh, the Bible discusses the elders or a group of elders known as the Sanhedrin, right? this group uh, that would um, create, advise the king on military matters at times. And I think that's an important model for us to understand that when you're under invasion, you want to act quickly. You need the executive powers to respond quickly and defend your nation. When it comes to optional wars, it's very important to consult and to think long and hard and make sure you're acting strategically in a smart way and also in an ethical way. And one of the important biblical and Jewish teachings on this topic is that when it comes to optional wars, you got to make sure to consult with others. There has to be a broader a group of people that are approving this strike to make sure that this is actually the right move to do. Who are the others, rabbis, military leaders? Um, so, you know, here, uh, I think it's a combination. And, you know, certainly if you want to make it, uh, think about it in modern terms, you obviously want to have diplomatic and military strategists who are involved okay. in a broad way. Uh, I think there is important room for spiritual leaders or philosophers or other peoples of, uh, of the spirit um, who should have give input into thinking about some of these questions as well. Well, it's fascinating. I'm glad you mentioned Iran. That could go for uh, three more days of conversation, which we're not going to do at the moment. But I do want to uh, encourage uh, people listening to, to go back a couple of weeks. Our last episode in December was called Iran, All Options on the Table uh, with, two, with two experts, political uh, military experts discussing it and we, we, we kind of scratched the surface so uh, people can go back and forth and listen to the, this conversation between us and that conversation. And, and maybe we'll come back and have you and, uh, and one of the military experts uh, address it because unfortunately, uh, sadly your book is, that's coming out is not just academic, but is, is timely. And, and uh, sometimes, some, some may say, the question is whether your book's gonna pub be published before or after there's going to have been a strike on Iran. So, um, obviously, I don't think anyone's looking forward to that, but, but we need to understand the options. Um, Israel is often credited as being, you alluded to this uh, in terms of the training, among the most moral armies, providing uh, warning of attacks, holding off on attacks. We, we just discussed that in terms of uh, the, 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 the Iraq, Iranian, uh, Iraqi, excuse me, uh, attack on the nuclear reactor being in the middle of the night. To, to, to limit uh, civilian casualties. Um, in our neighboring uh, uh, um, uh, areas, we drop leaflets, we call residents of buildings that are about to be targeted. We don't bomb terrorists, leaders that are hiding in hideouts underneath civilian structures like hospitals. And, and another thing you also alluded to that I, uh, I don't know if it was your intention, but sometimes we send in ground troops rather than a universal bombing, which might be more effective uh, from a military strategy, but puts our troops at risk. And, and there are other examples like that. Um, we're also perhaps, if not the one of the most threatened countries in the world, uh, and, and therefore accordingly, one of the most criticized. How, does the, how do we exist on a day-to-day -day basis with this paradox, paradox of Israel balancing these realities of Give, giving warning that we're going about to target you or, or we're going to send in our troops because we don't want to kill your civilians accidentally, yet 
existing in a it, with the with these very real threats. Yeah, I mean it, it's it's a very complex situation. Um, and, and by the way, I'm not sure that Israel always gets it right, but you know, in terms of that balance, but I fully agree that Israel, and you can see this from many outside observers as well, is a tremendously moral country and has a tremendously moral army. Um, there is this rabbinic notion that we, in, in order to minimize the number of casualties, particularly of non-combatants, um, in biblical times, the way that people went to war a lot of times was a siege. And the rabbis discussed this idea that you should keep the fourth side open. So oh. that way people can leave the city, right? In other words, if people want to escape, right? So you can conquer the city, but you don't have to conquer the city by killing everyone if we have another way of doing it, namely for people leaving the city. And so uh, that, by the way, may be a good strategy because if people feel like they don't have um, any reason not to fight, right? they have no options, they'll keep on fighting. Yes. If you give people a way of getting out of there, they might say, well, it's not really worth fighting also. And so they'll flee. But it's also a, a humane uh, considerations that driving that notion. And I think you know, the modern state of Israel has taken uh, this idea of, you, know, you gave the example of roof knocking, right? not just dropping leaflets to say that we're going to uh, let you know that we're bombing, which of course removes the element of surprise. So sometimes yeah. that might not be such a good move. Uh, but we even at times will, when we have a targeted strike, we'll drop a sort of an empty bomb to create a big noise to scare people out of the out of the building, um, and you know, by and large, you know, I think there's a lot of wisdom to that because it helps us to destroy a terrorist many times infrastructure or a building um, while trying to minimize the casualties of non-combatants. Uh, you know, and, and Israel does a lot of things along those lines um, because again, you're trying to keep in mind multiple values. On the one hand, you want to win. You want to win decisively. You want your own people to be protected. At the same time, you want to try to minimize the number of casualties amongst people who are all created in the image of God. Um, you know, and that having said all of that, you know, I do think that there are times when it could be that Israel has been a little bit too cautious when sometimes we'll send in ground troops or we won't send an aerial bombing of a certain building or whatnot because we're afraid of civilian casualties and that will overly endanger our own soldiers. Yeah. Um, and you know that's a real concern. It's been a concern since the Lebanon War in 1982, and it continues to be a concern in subsequent Israeli warfare. Um, and you know those images, of course, um, don't look good. And it's not only true for Israel, it's you know, true for America and Afghanistan or Iraq or Britain or Canada or other countries that have fought other places around the world where difficult images coming, stemming from unfortunate and tragic uh, casualties from non-combatants sometimes makes us second guess our behavior. And it's okay to second guess our behavior, but that's why we need to establish clear ethical principles of how and why not only we go to war, but how we fight those wars. Um, and we cannot allow images, TV images, uh, media images to, um, I, I think, you know, to basically warp a way of moral thinking on these types of issues. Very um, important. Yeah. I'm glad you said that. So let me ask you, here, here's a weird question. If you're God, how would you, how, what, what, what uh, grade would you give Israel on its, 
on its military ethics. <laughs> uh, well, I don't want to play the role of God, but you know, if I would uh, play the role of a, a deeply um, caring religious observer, you know, I, I think, and especially also just keeping in mind, um, yeah, I, I'm I'm putting all these caveats here because I really don't want to play okay. God. <laughs> um, but um, you know, you have to also keep in mind you can only fight so well and ethically based on the conditions of your times, right? So you have to keep in mind part of the ethical considerations and judgments are, well, what's the, how's the other side playing? Are they playing by any? Oh, very good. Okay. Are they, or do they care about this game at all, right? They care about um, the rules out of the game at all. Um, and given the fact that Israel's enemies have very um, few ethical compunctions, uh, in terms of caring about targeting non-combatants, all sorts of issues like that, uh, I give Israel an A. Wow, great! I I have to say everything that you've that you've brought out here, and you've you've given it lots of thought. Obviously, you're writing a book about it. I so look forward to reading that book, um, and I and I hope that we will have uh, until then and and long afterward many many months of peace. So this is only academic. But why are you writing the book now? Why is the book coming out this year? Um, you know, A, I, of course, I agree with you, and we all pray for peace, and this is, you know, a, the ultimate value that we should pray for. Uh, but um, the topic, um, in my mind, is urgent because, A, of the threat of war with Iran and others um, that certainly hovers over us, anyone living in Israel, but, but not just in Israel, the West in general. People have to be thinking about the, that type of threat. Um, and I really feel a sense of urgency on this issue, though, because I feel that we've gotten confused in our moral thinking about these topics. I mean, the impact of seeing images has tremendously warped our way, and we just see something that's tragic or bad or sad, and that immediately leads us to say, oh, you know, that must have been a wrong thing to do. That must have been an unethical thing to do. And I don't think that's always the case. Um, warfare, of course, brings alongside with it tragedy, and it brings alongside of it a lot of unfortunate incidents. That doesn't mean that the war in general or the specific action in particular was unethical or wrong. Um, and, and for that reason, we have to really clarify for ourselves, when do we justify making certain types of strikes or uh, bombings, and when are they right and when are they wrong, um, even when there's going to be inevitable uh, collateral damage, or the killing of non-combatants. And if we don't get that those issues clear, we're going to have a very hard time fighting the threats that face us today. And so the book becomes urgent for that reason. It is urgent, and, and anything could happen at any time. Um, what do you say? I mean, we have lots of Christian friends who are following and listening and who support Israel unconditionally and wholeheartedly and are always praying for Israel but what do you say to others? What's sort of the closing message to, to non-Jewish or for that matter, Jewish and non-Jewish observers of, of these scenes that play out um, when Israel's either forced or thrust into a situation that doesn't look so pretty or is, or is reported at best without context? How, what, what, do you want, what do you want people to leave this conversation with? So firstly, I want to say thank you to all of our Jewish and Christian supporters across the world who recognize the complexity of the situation that Israel faces and continue to be loyal supporters of the state. 
And to those you know, who question a lot of our actions, I would just urge them um, to examine the situation in a much more a careful and nuanced manner. Because I think that if you dig a little bit deeper, you'll see that while it's true that Israel might not make get everything right, and the mistakes, of course, happen along the way as well. If you understand the values that are guiding the army in this country, if you understand the nature of the threats, if you see all the ways we're trying to balance winning and protecting our own, while at the same time trying to minimize the damage upon our enemy, uh, our enemies, I think you'll appreciate that Israel is doing a very, very um, deep, and I'd say even a profoundly religious and um, positive, um, providing positive example uh, to the world and how we can deal with these types of threats that we're gonna face now in the 21st century. Uh, and you just have to recognize that images alone do not tell you the full story. And we all know this from our own lives. We all know how we can um, be deceived or feel that other people are judging us unfairly based on what they see from a picture, yes. or from a WhatsApp image or something else. Rabbi Shlomo Brody, this has been not just insightful, it's been a delight. And I'm so glad I had the presence of mind to think to invite you to be a guest. And I look forward, not just reading the book, but having you back on many more conversations with this gift that you have of taking uh, traditional Jewish texts and, and, and uh, teachings and applying them to really important modern issues. Thank you for, for joining us. Thank you so much for having me today. Um, if you've stayed with us this long, you deserve a reward. Beginning this month, the Genesis 123 Foundation is offering a special gift. Each month, we'll be giving away a special volume from Jonathan's bookshelf. Please go to Inspiration from Zion social media and like us and follow us. When you comment and share this link to this program and the others this month, we will select one winner at random. And this month, we're offering a really important book, also discussing a lot of the nuance of the history of the state of Israel. It's an autographed copy of Dr. Daniel Gordis's book, Israel, A Concise History of a Nation Reborn. Please join us. We're grateful that this podcast is sponsored by our friends at the Willow Run Greenhouse in Culpeper, Virginia. If you're in the area and need something that a greenhouse has, please pop in and get it from them. And if you are in the area but don't need anything, just go in and say hi and thank you and, uh, to them for helping make this program and conversations like this possible. And also thanks to our friends, the Coyne family, for their meaningful sponsorship. Inspiration from Zion and all the Genesis 123 Foundation programs are made possible by donations. So please consider joining us to help continue the dialogue and build bridges. This episode specifically, we're grateful for two sponsors. Uh, we're, we're grateful for uh, to sponsor and celebrate Aaron and Rebecca's wedding and an anonymous donation. I'm allowed to say his first name from Stephen, who's been a fan and follower for the last number of months. If you'd like to sponsor a future episode in honor or memory of a loved one or a special occasion, please be in touch with us at inspirationfromzion at gmail.com. We'd love to hear your comments and par as part of a dialogue and invite you to send any questions as well, questions that you have about Judaism, about Israel, what whatever it may be. Please share this with others who will also find it of interest and continue to join us right here as we bring you more meaningful conversations about unique topics relating to Israel that you won't hear anywhere else. Wherever you are in the world, I pray that you and your loved ones are all safe and healthy and send my blessings here to you 
from right here in the Judean mountains. Thank you and God bless you.